0: The observance of Good Friday in our hearts begins when we recover a sense of the shock and the astonishment at all of the events that led up to Jesus' crucifixion. With over 2,000 years of Good Friday worship services under our belt and millions of crosses hanging on the necks of human beings, it's pretty hard to experience the shock of the crucifixion any longer. The cross fits upon our imagination like an old pair of socks, comfy but perhaps a little bit too stretched out. Arguably the most challenging thing about worship during Holy Week is re-experiencing something of the trauma of those events as they were experienced by those who were there. The prophet Isaiah captures and he fully anticipated how unbelievable all the events of Holy Week would be for those who experienced them. He says, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was marked, marred beyond human semblance and and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Who has believed what he has heard from us? The astonishment here is not positive, but it's negative. It is the astonishment we felt on 9-11 when we saw a video of planes flying into buildings and people jumping out of 40-story windows to their death. These things were too horrible to be true, and yet they were true. And what happened to Jesus was so horrible that it was nearly unbelievable. It was astonishing. The torture, the beatings, so severe that he was disfigured beyond recognition. His suffering so great that he didn't even seem human anymore. He was dehumanized like a piece of meat hanging on a hook. In the ancient world, there was nothing that was more shameful and more humiliating than death on a cross. The secular historian, Tom Holland, describes the Roman practice of crucifixion this way. No death was more excruciating, more contemptible than crucifixion. To be hung naked, long in agony, swelling with ugly wheels on shoulder and chest, helpless to beat away the clamorous birds. Such a fate, Roman intellectuals agreed, was the worst imaginable. This, in turn, was what it rendered it so suitable a punishment for slaves. In the exposure of the crucified to the public gaze, there lurked a paradox. So far was the carrion reek of their disgrace that many felt tainted even viewing a crucifixion. It was this disgust that crucifixion uniquely inspired, which explained why when slaves were condemned to death, they were executed in the meanest, wretchedest stretch of land beyond the city walls. The paradox that Holland observes about the Romans was that even though they were avid practitioners of crucifixion, the spectacle, the spectacle of it as a means of death was so cruel that they did not want to see it for themselves or reflect upon it. They felt tainted by even viewing it which is why crucifixions were typically done outside the city gates where people lived. Of course, this is the same logic behind why the Nazis set up all their concentration camps and gas chambers for the Jews outside of the borders of Germany. They did not want to be tainted by all the death. And maybe this is why Good Friday is so hard for us to engage with our imaginations about what actually took place. It's simply too hard to look at. We want to hide our faces. We want to hide our faces from the war of crucifixion. And again, Isaiah foresaw this, that this would be our instinct. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not to look upon the cross is to gaze into a mirror this is why it's so hard to look at the cross and to contemplate the horror it is to gaze in a mirror it is to be reminded of the brutality and the violence of which human beings are capable and this is a very different experience from the violence and brutality that we see daily in tv and movies and video games that kind of violence numbs us because it is consumed as entertainment, and it seems unreal, and it tends to make us more desensitized to the actual horror of violence in the world. But the cross of Christ confronts us with the true horror of which the human race is capable. It tells us that this is not an anomaly of well-meaning people or an epiphenomenon of our experience Just remember that we have had three mass shootings in the past three weeks in Atlanta, Boulder, and Orange County. That's just to name some of the violence. America is no more civilized than Rome. It's no less brutal and violent. To look upon the cross is to look into a mirror. It is to see the grim and grisly visage of our depraved nature. It is to be astonished by our evil. But it's not just extreme forms of violence and brutality and evil that is mirrored back to us in the death of Jesus. The cross reveals small and large sins alike. The betrayal of Jesus Jesus by Judas, the desertion of the disciples, the indifference of the onlookers, the denial of Peter, the mockery of the crowds, The corruption of the high priests, the cowardice of Pilate, the death of Jesus, was made possible through a systematic, yet completely uncoordinated collusion of human cruelty, fear, failure, and self-interest. In contemplating the cross, we should be astonished at ourselves. Astonished and ashamed of how much evil and wrong we are capable of committing, even though we believe we have the very best intentions, the cross unmasks our hearts. But perhaps even more shocking about the cross is the identity of the one who suffers on the cross. It is the servant of the Lord, the Holy One, the Holy One of God the one who is utterly righteous and innocent. According to Isaiah, he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. So how could one so righteous suffer so severely? How could one so good be treated so badly? The shock of all of Israel was that Jesus of Nazareth, the one who was powerful in word and deed, the one who touched lepers, loved the poor, healed the sick and the blind, the one who proclaimed the kingdom of God, this one, how could this one suffer such a terrible fate? How could God let this happen? Why, did, why didn't God intervene? Most astonishing of all is the answer that Isaiah gives. To these questions. Why did God let this happen? And his answer is this it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, to bruise him. How can this be? Why would it be God's will that his servant be crushed? What can this possibly mean? Now, incidentally, this is not simply the view of the prophet Isaiah. It is also the view of the New Testament. Peter, speaking in the book of Acts, remarks that this Jesus was crucified and killed by lawless men, but nevertheless, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The death of Jesus was not a freak accident or an unforeseen tragedy. It was part of the plan. This is Jesus' own view of his own death as well. He says on multiple occasions in the gospel, well ahead of his imminent death, the Son of Man must, must suffer many things and be killed and rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus understood clearly that his suffering and death was part of a much larger plan. But what kind of plan is this? What kind of plan is it that it was the Lord's will to crush him? This, frankly, is an insane plan, a cruel plan, a foolish plan. And here we find ourselves at the very heart of what is most scandalous about God's ways in salvation. The most astonishing thing of all, the death of the Son of God was the divine plan from the beginning, the plan from before he was conceived in the womb of Mary. Centuries before it ever happened, the prophet Isaiah sees it and he gives us insight into it. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Why was it that the Lord's will to crush him? It was that he might stand in our place That he might bear what we couldn't and becoming human he stepped into our shoes and he bore what we could not bear what would surely crush us completely and totally he bore our sorrows he bore our griefs our iniquities our trespasses our wanderings and our punishment he became our substitute This is the meaning of the phrase that we say a lot and hear quite often. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus died for your sins. He became our substitute. But to say that Jesus died for your sins, yes, he he died because of our sins. But to say that he died for our sins means that we don't have to die for them ourselves. He became the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus' suffering and death was a substitution for our suffering and death. John Stott describes this substitution in these terms. Substitution lies at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. While well, the essence of salvation is God substituting Himself for man, man asserts himself against God, and God puts Himself where only God, I'm sorry, man asserts himself against God and puts Himself where only God deserves to be. And God sacrifices Himself for man, and puts Himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone, and God accepts penalties that belong to man alone. This substitution is what the early church fathers called the wonderful exchange. The wonderful exchange. He takes our sin, we take his righteousness. He takes our pain, we take his healing. He takes our alienation, we take his peace with God. He takes our punishment, we take his reward. This substitution, this wonderful exchange is what the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians meant when he talked about the ministry of reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, In Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the sins, the trespasses against them. For our sake God made him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. God, for our sake, made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is the wonderful exchange. What does the cross then reveal to us about God? What do we learn about God as we look at the cross? We learn that God is a God of love and justice a God of love and justice. These two things are not in contradiction with one another. Many are uncomfortable with the language of substitution, uncomfortable with the idea that God needs to punish injustice and sin. Why does God need to punish? He's God, right? And especially, why would he punish his own son for our sins? Is this not a form of divine child abuse? Can't God simply forgive sins? Let me ask you this. How do you think people would react if Derek Chauvin, the man who is now on trial for the cruel death of George Floyd, if he were convicted of murder but then immediately upon his conviction was released from prison to live free. How do you think that would go over? Would this be justice served? What if the judge and the jury said, you are guilty and you are condemned, but we forgive you, just don't do it again. How would that go over? That's not justice, that's cheap justice. That's sham justice, right? It is a universal instinct of the human spirit created in the image of God to desire that evil be named as such and injustice be named as such and punished that recompense be made against wrongs done. A God that does not hold human beings accountable for their evil for their sin, for their injustice, is not a God of justice. And to clamor for justice in a world while embracing a God of love with no wrath against those who do injustice for a world to come is a lie and a contradiction. But the cross reveals to us that God is a God of justice. But when we look at the cross, we need to see that the justice of God is ordered to the love of God. The justice of God is ordered to the love of God. Love and justice in God is not a balancing act. They're not two faces that are dueling in different directions. It is not yin and yang. It is not two polarities. Love and justice. Love, justice is ordered to love in God. The love of God has always been the overarching framework. The love of God has always been the guiding plan from the beginning, and it is the completion of the plan in the end. And justice always, in God's economy, serves the needs of love. Justice serves the needs of love. So what is satisfied on the cross is not simply the wrath of God, but the love of God. That's because the wrath of God expressed at injustice is the backside of his love. The wrath of God at injustice is the backside of his love for a creation and for a people created in his image. And I think it's important to remember this. Brothers and sisters, more than anything, when you look at the cross and when we look to see what it reveals to us, it reveals to us a God of love. But it reveals to us a God who goes to great lengths, who in order to uphold the integrity of love, by saving sinners rather than condemning them, so that they might become his dear children. We should be astonished by this love. We should be astonished most of all by this love. Paul the Apostle himself was astonished in Romans 5. He says, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, while we were in rebellion, while we were antagonistic, while we were in rejection and hatred of God, God saved us. He died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him, from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. We need to recover our astonishment on Good Friday. We need to be astonished by our sin and our wickedness. We need to be astonished by God's strange plan. How he entered into our place and endured what only we deserve to endure This should astonish us. But most of all, we need to be astonished by his great love. See, the love of God becomes real when we realize how much it cost him for it to be effective in our lives. We need to be astonished by his great love revealed in the cross. We need to see what wondrous love this is. And as we will sing in a few short moments, what wondrous love is this, O my soul, O my soul, what wondrous love is this, O my soul? What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul, for my soul. To bear the dreadful curse for my soul. Amen. Amen. our appropriate response